0: Our Old Testament lesson comes from Psalm 38. Psalm 38, hear now the word of the Lord. A psalm of David for the memorial offering. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs. My strength fails me. And the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague. And my nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. But I am like a deaf man, I do not hear, like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear, and in whose mouth are no rebukes. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me, who boast against me when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall, and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. But my foes are vigorous, they are mighty, and many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me, because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Psalm 38 has 22 verses which we call a quasi-acrostic because there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, Now, this is important because of where we are in the Psalter right now. Uh, Psalms 34 and 37 that we've just gone gone through recently are actual acrostics. Each stanza begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. But 33 and 38 are what we call quasi-acrostics. They have 22 verses each. And so what's what's that doing here? Well, it's, it's setting us up for understanding how six psalms relate, 33 through 38. Because if the quasis are at the bottom of the pyramid, the actuals are next to them. Right in the middle, Psalms 35 and 36. So this structure is calling attention to how Psalm 35 and 36 are at the center of what the, the Psalter is doing. And that means that what's happening in Psalm 38 is connected to this whole arc in this section of the Psalter. So just I know we're at the we're at the beginning of the school year, which means we have some folks who weren't here for 33 through 37. So let me just give you a brief reminder of what that's about. Psalms 33 and 34 set up this section with a statement of the underlying reality of who God is and what God has said. God is faithful to his promises. Great is your faithfulness. Now, Psalm 35 is a psalm of the cross, which speaks of the Davidic king as the servant of the Lord. And Psalm 36 even put that in the title of the psalm, of David, the servant of the Lord. Those are the only two psalms that refer to David as the servant of the Lord. And they're right back to back in the middle of this little pyramid of psalms. Think it's important? Yes. David, the servant of the Lord. Psalms 35 and 36 focus on David, the suffering servant of the Lord. And now Psalms 37 and 38 remind us that in the midst of the kingdom, when the king is sitting on the throne, a Psalm of David. Things are not the way they should be. (laughs) I am not the way I should be. God's word remains true. He is faithful. His steadfast love endures forever. But sometimes we don't see it yet. And so we need to trust the Lord and do good. We saw last time that Psalm 37 is the Psalter's version of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Psalm 38 is a very different sort of song. Psalm 38 is a lament as David speaks of all the problems in life. It really, there are it comes down to I am I am out of sorts with God, my sin, I am out of sorts with my neighbor, I am out of sorts with creation, I am out of sorts with myself. All of these four things are woven together, and you'll see in the in the in your outlines and your bulletins that the Psalm takes three of the those four in each section. So, like, for instance, verses 3 to 8, your, ind- your indignation, my alienation from God, my sins, and my suffering. But then, second- secondly, in verses 10 to 14, my friends, alienation from others, my enemies, <laughs> also ail- others, and my helplessness before God. And then, my pain, my sin, and my foes. My alienation from creation, my alienation from God, my alienation from others—all these things keep w- getting woven together throughout this psalm. And that's uh, we're we're singing it in the uh, the the Genevan version in the in your white books. And one of the things I really appreciate about this translation of Psalm 38 is just the way that as it as it takes that opening line, the the, the eight the eight syllable line, and there's a four syllable. Da 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 That second line takes the Hebrew does a lot of parallelism in the song, and so it takes that and gives it a very pithy statement of, "Here's the problem," or "Here's the solution." Our New Testament lesson comes from the Gospel of Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10 starting in verse 25. Hear now the word of the Lord from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, starting in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. We often refer to this as the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, but you could also refer to it as the parable of the Jew in the ditch. I mean, here's a, a man who's lying in a ditch, half dead, and a priest passes by, uh, and a Levite, both of whom know the law, they know Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And so both choose to say that they would prefer to be left for dead if their roles were reversed. That is what they're saying. Love your neighbor as yourself. Here's their neighbor and they're saying, oh, if the the roles were reversed, I would prefer that you just leave me here. Ooh. But the Samaritan had compassion an outsider a foreigner someone of a, of a different religion if you wanted to translate it into modern speak you might say that a, a Presbyterian was, was lying in the ditch and a, a Methodist and a Baptist walked by and passed by and then a Muslim came and had mercy on him that would be the parallel in Jesus' day and Jesus says go and do likewise It's worth remembering that human beings are capable of showing compassion even if their religion is wrong. That was true of the Samaritan. That's Jesus' point. It's like, Jesus' point is, what? How are you treating your neighbors? Are you loving your neighbor the way that God has told you? Well, we saw last time that Psalm 37 was the. Sermon on the Mount of the Psalter, You might say Psalm 38 is the song of the Jew in the ditch, the song of the Good Samaritan. Most modern commentaries suggest that the occasion for this psalm is some sort of sickness, because there's all these references to bodily affliction. Let's be careful not to make too many assumptions about the actual experience of the psalmist, because we, we don't know why he wrote this. We know that he wrote it for the public worship of Israel. So whatever the psalmist was going through personally really isn't the point. The point is, is that God is the God of my salvation even in the midst of whatever sort of suffering you're going through. God is the God of your salvation no matter what sort of suffering you're going through. And because this is a psalm of David... This is also the song of the King. This is the song of our Lord Jesus Christ. Structurally, the psalm is set up with three parts, each beginning with David addressing God, and each including three problems, which boils down to your indignation, my sin, other people, and my suffering. And the whole psalm then concludes with a final appeal for help. Psalm 38 can help us think through the the interrelation of the various problems that we have in life. We are alienated from God. And that's our first problem. The biggest problem for those that priest and that levite who walked past wasn't that they didn't love their neighbor. Their biggest problem was they didn't love God. If they had loved God, they would have loved their neighbor. You see, this is, this is our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is we don't love God. Because if we did, we would love our neighbor. And so every time we're failing to love our neighbor, we get so focused on trying to fix the problem with our neighbor that we lose sight of the fact that my real problem is that I don't love God. And until we fix that, until we are rightly related to him, we're not going to see what's happening anyplace else. That's why Psalm 38 starts with my biggest problem. But then there's lots of other problems that come with that because we wind up alienated from others, both friends and enemies, in Psalm 38. And we're alienated from ourselves, both spiritually through our sin and then physically through disease and bodily suffering, alienated from creation And each of the three sections of the psalm works through this in different ways. So it'll it'll give us different windows into this basic human condition and this basic glorious salvation. But first we should note the title. A Psalm of David for the memorial offering. Now, this is the form of the word to remember, which means a memorial. And the memorial offering was... uh, this, in, in First Chronicles 16, it says that David had appointed some of the Levites to invoke, literally, to remember the Lord. So it's quite likely that the Psalm 38 and, and Psalm 70, which also bears this inscription, were to be used for this particular part of the liturgy. It says, for the memorial offering. So when's, when is this song sung? When, when they are bringing this offering to the Lord. And now, why is this important? Well, because we need to understand that that psalm thirty eight is is not just about me and my experience psalm thirty eight is a part of the temple liturgy it 's not first and foremost about me and my personal situation it's first and foremost in the voice of David, in the voice of the Davidic king, in the voice of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the suffering servant of the Lord. Remember what I said about Psalms 35 and 36. David, the servant of the Lord, is at the heart of what this section of the Psalter is all about. So whether it was written by David or not isn't really the point. It's in the voice of David and that's what it means, of David. And so when we see Psalm 38 in this way, when we see Psalm 38 as a part of this memorial offering, as the people of God remember not just the Old Testament sacrifices. Now we sing this, remembering the memorial offering, the offering of our Lord Jesus Christ Himself. As we remember the suffering and the deliverance of our Lord Jesus Christ, His death, His resurrection, our own suffering comes into proper focus. Because when you see Christ and His sufferings at the center of history, And not just in the center of history, but at the center of your life, then your own suffering can begin to make sense. Until we see the cross at the center of history, at the center of our lives, then our suffering seems pointless. Why am I going through this? It's only when we see Psalm 38 as a psalm of remembrance, a psalm for the memorial offering. That when we see that we are united to him who loved us and gave himself for us, only then do we see ourselves and our afflictions in his light. Now, Psalm 38 opens with a frank admission that I am entirely in your hands. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. This is God's hand. This is what he has done. Now, we'll we'll see throughout this psalm that there are various sources of suffering. My sin, verse 3. My wounds, verse 5. My friends who desert me, verse 11. My foes, verse 19. But I won't understand all of that unless I start with God. My God has brought me to this place. And... If my God rebukes me in anger, if he disciplines me in wrath, I'm doomed. The psalmist understands that my folly, my festering sores, my fickle friends, and my foes are all bearable if God has mercy. Each of our three sections has an opening appeal to God, followed by an extended meditation on my troubles. Verses three to eight have this first meditation on my troubles. And the, the, the key conjunction in this first meditation is key. That's the Hebrew word, which means it's translated for. It's a key word. Sorry, English pun there. Key is a very common conjunction in Hebrew. And especially in poetry, it functions to explain why something is happening. And Hebrew poets use it to signal key points in the psalm. It really works that way. Certainly in this first stanza, it's very important. Verse 2 is a key verse. If you discipline me in wrath, I'm in trouble. Why? For, key, your arrows have sunk into me. I mean, the same word is used again in verse 4 and verse 7. And just if you look at these verses... There are two couplets in verses three and four, and there's the opening clause. There is no, verse three, there is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For, the word key, my iniquities have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. So why am I in this trouble? For my iniquities are too heavy. And then there's a triplet rooted in my foolishness. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. Literally, because of my empty-headedness. One commentator has said that empty-headedness is to vacate one's mind from the good one knows he should do. In other words, it's a deliberate emptying of the mind or disregard. It's deliberately not choosing the correct thing to do, even when one knows what that is. Empty-headedness, foolishness. I know what the right thing to do is, but eh, I want to do this instead. So the reason why I am utterly bowed down and prostrate all the day I go about mourning is because of my empty-headedness, because of my foolishness. I've made a mess of my life. I've brought this on myself. I knew what I should have done, and I didn't do it. I knew this was a terrible decision. I did it anyway. And David says that I'm utterly bowed down. I'm bent. I'm bent out of shape. It has the idea of twisting or writhing in pain. Or perhaps even being out of one's mind with pain. Ever been there? Ever had pain, whether physical or emotional, that is such that you are just twisted out of shape? Because... What may have started as an affliction of the body can easily become an affliction of the mind and spirit or vice versa. Like rust and rot, disease can eat away at the very foundations on which life is established. And if my relationship with God is out of joint and my relationship with other people is out of joint, not surprisingly, my whole life becomes out of joint. One commentator says that With disease, often we feel that God becomes distant, that his wrath is more evident than his love, and there's a perpetual awareness of the fact that God appears to have forsaken the sufferer, me. Human beings also become distant, acts of love become distorted into hatred, and real enemies grow beyond the proportions of reality. It is all a part of the process of illness, whereby the various agonies of the body become the agonies of the mind. This is what happens to us. Psalm 38 reflects on how disease is not merely a physical affliction. It's not simplistic. I sin, therefore I get sick. But rather, disease itself can become the occasion for a growing distance between me and God. Between me and my fellow man. And as we're seeing, I think, more and more clearly these days... There's not just physical illnesses, there's also mental illnesses. I mean, anytime you've, if you've ever been afflicted with anxiety or depression, the way you start to look at other people changes and the things that they're doing that once that you would have interpreted as being, ah, they're, they're, they're being kind to me now feel like they're pushing me away because mental illness does crazy things just like physical illness. And this becomes especially clear as we come to the third and final key in the first stanza. Verse 7, 4, key. My sides are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. Now, if you follow the keys, if you follow the word for through this first stanza, watch where they go. For your arrows have sunk into me. For my iniquities have gone over my head, for my sides are filled with burning. It starts with God. You have done this, and then it moves to my sin. I've brought this on myself. And it concludes with my misery, my affliction, the agony of my condition. It may be physical disease, it may be mental anxiety or depression, it may be emotional distress and agony. <laughs> the end result is the same. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. We've all been there. Maybe that's where you are right now. But where do I turn in this? Well, this is why the second section, starting in verse 9, starts again by turning back to the Lord. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. Notice two things. David has confidence that he is being heard. And secondly, the basis of his confidence is his recognition that God knows everything. God is omniscient. He knows everything. And so even in the midst of my agony, I remember to whom I am speaking. When you come to God, please don't forget who he is. He sees, he knows, nothing is hidden from his sight. And yet my longing, my sighing continues. Now in the first stanza, my focus was on my alienation from God. Here in the second stanza, the focus will be on my alienation from other people. As my affliction worsens, even my friends stand aloof, everyone abandons me. Now, This was certainly true for Job in his sufferings. Uh, It was true for the lepers and others afflicted by disease in the Old Testament. But it was above all true of our Lord Jesus Christ when he was abandoned by his disciples and friends. Verse 11, My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague and my nearest kin stand far off. When our Lord Jesus goes to the cross, he's abandoned by all. And when we face this in our own experience, We must remember that a servant is not greater than his master. Our consolation comes from knowing that God is conforming us to the likeness of his son, our Lord Jesus. Now, verse 12 is the central triplet. The the triplet in verses 5 and 6 centered on my foolishness leading to misery. But this triplet in the middle of uh, here in verse 12 focuses on the role of my enemies in my downfall. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. Notice that my enemies are not the cause of my misery. They simply make it worse. My misery is rooted in God's discipline and my foolishness. My enemies are simply taking advantage of this. Do not blame others for your misfortune. Do not accuse others of making you sin. The devil made me do it doesn't work with God. Remember, Eve tried that, didn't go so well for her. But it is appropriate to bring your complaint to God because God will bring justice. He will make all things right in the end. And that's where the, the pair of couplets in verses 13 and 14 conclude the stanza by... Showing the psalmist's helplessness, indeed, one could say the psalmist's relentless helplessness. Now, I say it this way for a reason. Verses twelve to fourteen do something very unusual in the Psalms. Each verse begins with an and. Now, in Hebrew poetry, that doesn't happen. In in Hebrew narrative, everything starts with with an and, the vav. In poetry, not so much. So the fact that it appears at the beginning of every verse, let me, let me read it to you the way that it would sound if you put that in there. And those who seek my life lay their snares. And those who seek my hurt speak of ruin. And they meditate treachery all day long. And I am like a deaf man I do not hear. And I am like a mute man who does not open his mouth. And I have become like a man who does not hear. And in whose mouth are no rebukes. My deafness, my muteness, are resolutely connected to their treacherous speaking and plotting. That's why I refer to it as relentless helplessness. It's hard to remain silent in the face of affliction. But of course, our Lord Jesus did that when he was stood before his accusers and did not open his mouth. But as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he went to the cross. But in response to this relentless use of and in verses 12 to 14, I am helpless before my foes. Verses 15 to 18, return to our keys. But for you, O oh Lord, do I wait. Those ands drove me into silence and despair. The key restores my voice. For you, O oh Lord, do I wait. The, There's actually no but in the Hebrew. It's simply, for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. And then another key. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me, who boast against me when my foot slips. Do not give them the victory, O Lord. And then our third key takes us back to my misery. For I am ready to fall, and my pain is ever before me. And there's another key in verse 18, which unfortunately didn't get translated. For I confess my iniquity. Notice what these four keys are doing. These four keys take us all the way back through our situation, starting with God, because we always have to start with Him. The psalmist moves from his plea about his enemies, let them not rejoice over me, to his plea about his affliction, I'm ready to fall, before finally. Coming back to his own sin. For I confess my iniquity. Because disease and other people can make it hard to walk before God. But nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Therefore, nothing can stop you from repenting and confessing your sin against him. After all, our sin is always against you, you only have I sinned. You you, you sometimes wonder, how could David say this? He had just sinned against Uriah by killing him. He had just sinned against Bathsheba, adultery. And he says, against you and you only have I sinned. What does he mean? He understands that his sin is against God. We get so fixated on, I've got to, I I need to repent to this person, confess to this person. But how have you sinned against God? Where is, where is your sin against God? How have you offended him? Because until you see that, everything else is not going to work. Because you're missing the heart. Of the problem. I, for I confess my iniquity, I am sorry for my sin. Sin is always against God because we have not loved Him with our whole heart. Now, someone might say, How could Jesus be the singer of this psalm? Jesus has no sin to confess. Now, that's certainly true. He committed no sin, He was free from the taint of original sin. He had no sin of His own to confess whatsoever. But, he who knew no sin became sin for us. The whole point of all those offerings in the Old Testament had been to show us that you need to take your sin and lay it upon a sacrifice, upon an offering, and the sin offering would bear the sin of the people. Hebrews 10:4 reminds us that it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away our sins. So there had to be a sacrifice that could When Jesus took our sin upon himself, he did confess our iniquity to the Father. All our sin was laid on him. The iniquity of us all was laid on him that he might bear that wrath and curse. So as our atoning sacrifice, as that sin offering, he bore our sin. And so he could say, I confess my iniquity, not because he had committed any of those sins, but they were laid on him, and so they were now his. But after these keys bring me to the solution, the confession of my sin, I'm, I'm brought up short with one more vav, one more and, or, or but. But my foes are vigorous, they are mighty, and many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. Indeed, when our Lord Jesus took our sin upon himself and endured the wrath and curse of God, he also endured the wrath and hostility of men. In his death on the cross, Jesus suffers the distress of utter forsakenness as his friends and relatives stand apart from him. Jesus stands in solidarity with outcasts and makes their fate his own. And in this, God confronts all sufferers as their help and their salvation, as our help, as our salvation. And that's why the psalmist concludes, Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. Remember the title. For the memorial offering. For the remembrance. Deuteronomy had said over and over again, remember the Lord your God. Do not forget what the Lord has done. At the very heart of Christian worship is is remembering who God is and what he has done. At the very heart of the Christian life is drawing near to him, remembering him. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me. O Lord of my salvation. Even in the midst of suffering and disease, when you cannot imagine how a good God could ever do this, remember that Jesus was there first. This last line, make haste to help me, O Lord of my salvation, is the very heart of Christian prayer. You will never find yourself in a situation where this prayer is inappropriate. When you are discouraged and depressed, Make haste, O Lord, to help me when you are tired and worn out. Make haste to help me, O Lord, of my salvation when you're sick and afflicted. Make haste to help me, O Lord, of my salvation. And for that matter, when things are going well, when life is good, and and you don't want to forget God because you know where that ends, make haste to help me, O Lord, of my salvation. In every situation you will ever face, Make haste oh, to help me, O oh Lord of my salvation. O oh Lord of our salvation, make haste to help us. Do not forsake us, O oh Lord, but be near to your people, as you have promised. May you draw near, as you have done, as in the incarnation of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who came in our flesh and joined himself to our humanity, that he might join us to you through his own becoming the sin offering that has borne our sin, our guilt, and our misery, that through his death and resurrection, he might bring us to you. Through his ascension to your right hand, he might lead us up into your holy presence, that by your Holy Spirit, we might draw near to you with hearts full of confidence that you are a good Father who is ever ready and willing to help us. Have mercy upon us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.